Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Spider by Clive Pemberton. Midway down the echoing stone-flagged corridor, I stopped and clutched Dr. Hoxton by the arm, for, iron-nerved and seldom moved as I am, I was rudely startled. Good heavens! I cried. What was that? From the far end of the corridor, there had suddenly sounded a series of dull, sickening thuds, and then a voice— a human voice, but so distorted as to retain but an echo of humanity, wailed up and in a wild shriek that curdled the blood with its suggestion of nightmare and horror. The doctor gave me a reassuring glance and led the way forward. If you spend as many of your days within the walls of a lunatic asylum, you would not be alarmed by... The sounds just like that, he said. What you have just heard proceeds from the padded cell at the end there. One of the worst cases. You can see him if you like. It is a peculiar case. Very peculiar and somewhat inexplicable. In a few moments, we reached the padded cell. There was a small grating close up to the ceiling, and adjusting a short flight of portable steps, Huxton told me to look in. The maniac was crouching against the wall opposite the grating. Fierce pants heaved his chest and shook his frame. Over his face the long matted hair fell in shaggy locks, and behind them a pair of wild, shining eyes glared out with a terrible intensity. Suddenly, and without warning, he leapt up, and almost touching the ceiling, as the two words came in a scream from his foaming lips again and again. Spider! 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 A shriek, pregnant with the ecstasy of terror, followed the reiterated words, and with the perspiration pouring down his distorted countenance, the wretched being crouched back in his former position, his eyes again staring in horror at the mental vision conjured by a frenzied brain. "'Come to my room,' said the doctor, leading the way away from the dreadful cell. "'If you're interested, I will tell you about Andrew Fleming.' "'the poor creature you have just seen.' "'I was interested, and comfortably seated in an easy chair in my friend's room, "'I listened to the strangest story I had ever heard. Six months ago,' began Huxton, looking at his cigar reflectively, "'Andrew Fleming was as sane as you or I.' "'a good deal saner than many people I have come across. "'He was steward to Sir Japs Baholicky, 
and the owner of marshlands. You have seen the house, perhaps? A big, square mansion standing alone in a large expanse of grounds on the hill, opposite to this asylum? Yes, I have seen it, I replied. But I understand it was shut up, deserted. Quite so. I'm coming to that, went on the doctor. As a matter of fact, Marshlands has not been occupied for twenty years or more. Old Jasper had a rooted antipathy to the place and never came near it. When he died, however, and his son entered into the titles and estates, he at once announced his intention of living there for a portion of the year. He accordingly sent Fleming to get the place in order. Fleming was a widower with one child, a little girl some eight or nine years of age. Now comes the horrible and mysterious part of the story. It was about a week after Fleming and his little daughter had taken up their abode there. The weather was fine and summer-like, and it was a delight to see the child playing about the grounds which had been so long deserted and empty. One evening, about eight o'clock, the little one being safely in bed, Fleming went over the house as usual, locked all the doors carefully, and went into the village to make a few purchases. On the way home, he was beguiled into joining a sort of impromptu concert which some of the young men of the village had got up in the parlor of the inn, and it was one o'clock before he arrived back home. Having let himself in with his latchkey, he went upstairs. But before going to his room, he entered the small chamber adjoining to see if the child was asleep, as she sometimes kept awake until he returned when he spent the evening out. The room was in darkness, and he suddenly stopped as a faint moaning sound came, not from the bed, but over by the window. He hurriedly struck a light and saw that the bed was empty. In another moment, a sight met his eyes, calculated to make the reason out of any father, totter. Huddled up on the floor beneath the window, the pane of which was cracked and broken, was the child. She was quite unconscious when he lifted her in his arms and placed her on the bed. He just noticed that there were marks of blood on the white nightgown. Then, without a second's hesitation, he flew out of the house and ran madly here, knowing that I was the nearest doctor for a long way around. Fortunately, I was up and dressed, and we were back at the house within minutes. Alas, we were too late. The fair little creature was dead. I could do nothing immediately towards discovering what had caused the child's death. For the father's grief and rage were frightful to witness. Gradually, however, he became calmer. I then examined the frail little body, 
From the moment I entered the room, I became aware of a peculiar odor. A smell like that, given out when a pile of dead, sodden leaves, which have remained untouched for some time, is turned over. I only gave it a passing thought, then set to work on my examination. The first thing I noticed was a number of strange cuts on the child's right forearm and breast. An examination of the broken window betrayed a fact that deepened the terrible mystery. Somebody, or something, had endeavored to drag the child through the broken window. The blood stains on the broken glass edges and the wounds on the arms and breast of the child proved it. But yet a more horrible discovery awaited me, and one I shall ever look back upon with a shuddering horror. Incredible as it may sound, terrible as it is in its suggestion of vague horror, the deadly fact was not to be questioned. The little body was bloodless. The terrible agent that had caused the child's death had drained her body of its life's blood. You horrify me, Huxton, I interposed. And it turned the father's brain? No, that alone did not do it, replied the doctor. Therein lies the bottom of the mystery. What actually happened and what he underwent will never be known. The night after the child's death, the pane of glass in the room Fleming slept in was found broken, and he, he crawling from the room to room, a raving madman. But the words I heard him speak, I said, what do they mean? I don't know. Nobody knows. For days together he is quiet, sullenness in his usual demeanor. Then, quite suddenly, he becomes violent. He seems to see something that terrifies him, for he cries ceaselessly, The spider! The spider! Perhaps he did see something that night. I sat silently thinking over what I had just heard, the strangeness of the affair sending my thoughts into curious channels. What is your opinion about it, Huxton? I said at last. What, in your opinion, could have caused the horrible death of that innocent child and sent her father, a sane, intelligent man, raving mad? His face turned curiously white, I do not know. I dare not think, he answered. It is a mystery, a terrible mystery, and likely to remain so for all time. For nobody will go near the place after sunset. Despite the thousand pounds reward, still unearned, which awaits for the man who will spend a night there and probe to the bottom of the horror of the house. Death or madness are terrible issues to risk. You have traveled about. What do you make of it? 
I make nothing of it at present, I replied steadily, but I will answer you after I have spent a night there. He looked at me aghast, the dawn of a great fear in his eyes. Good heavens, he cried, you don't mean that. You don't possibly mean that you are going to. Are you mad? He expostulated, argued, pleaded, even threatened. But I was obdurate, at least seeing that I was determined he gave way and ultimately consented to assist me in so as he was able. I decided to spend the following night at Marshlands alone, if I could only have known. The sun, a great fiery ball, was just sinking below the ridge of the hill the following night as I entered the grounds of the shunned house. In my left-hand pocket jangled the keys, in the other was a small case containing but a deadly revolver, which had been my inseparable companion during my years of travel abroad, and which had saved my life more than once. I felt no nervous qualms or the slightest feeling akin to fear as I stepped into the hall, and the door clanged behind me. Ascending the stairs, I decided on the room to which to hold my vigil, and laying the revolver and a pocket electric lamp on a small table, I started a tour of inspection through the rooms. A dank, musty smell caused by disuse pervaded every room, and the dust lay thick on carpets and furniture. In the room adjoining that in which I was to spend the night, I pulled up short with a momentary chill. The window pane was broken, and yes, there was a faint yet unmistakable odor of decayed leaves. The next moment, I was smiling at my sudden disquiet. It was the room the steward had slept in, and the broken window had not been replaced because nobody would enter the house. But the strange odor Huxton had spoken of was plainly there. Returning to the next room, I shut and locked the door and drew a chair close up to the window. The lurid afterglow of the sunset had long since faded from the sky, and the full moon riding proudly in the clear opaline dome, was bathing everything in a silvery sheen. How still it was! Not the faintest sound broke the intense silence, and sitting there alone, with a ghostly panorama spread out before me, I fell to thinking strange things. I was excited, but not nervous. My heart did not hurry one beat, My muscles were as rigid as the steel of the weapon I held in my hand. Yet I could not divert my thoughts from one channel. The horrible death and mutilation of the child came up before my mental vision. The sudden madness of the man whose frenzied cry, The spider! The spider! yet rang in my ears. Persistently clamored with me for explanation. What did that cry mean? Was it the voicing of a diseased mind's fantasy, or was it... Quite suddenly, and without warning, a strange feeling came over me. A feeling I find it difficult to describe and place on paper. My heart, which had been beating regularly, and without quite imperceptibility, had given a sickening leap. 
and then began to throb violently like it does when one is unexpectedly startled. At the same instant, an irresistible desire possessed me to lift the window and look out. Almost mechanically, I did so. The revolver gripped in my right hand, which hung rigid at my side. Fifty feet below, the grounds lay stretched out as brilliantly lighted by the floating radiance of the moon as in day. Every tree, shrub, and object stood out as clear and distinct as a cameo, and my eyes remained fixed, almost against my will and inclination, on the stone coping and cover of the disused well. The moon shone full upon it, revealing every chip and mark on the stonework and cover. Suddenly, I leant further out the window. Were my eyes going wrong, or had I really seen the wooden cover of the well move? Rigid as a statue, and with my blood humming in my ears, I watched. A few moments passed, and then... And then... Great heaven! It was no delusion. The solid wooden top of the well was moving, oscillating, tilting up, scarcely breathing, and with a nameless dread congealing my marrow, I watched the well with starting eyes. Higher and higher rose the cover, and then, with hardly a sound, it overweighted and fell to the ground. A moment passed, and then... And then... And even now my brain reels at the recollection of what followed. From the dark interior of the well crept out something which I can only describe best as a monstrous spider. From its body, which was about the size of a small barrel, there branched out four whip-like arms, which were covered, like the body, with a coarse red stubble. Its eyes... Even at the distance that I could plainly see them were at the end of its triangular body, and as I looked, they flashed emerald green in the moonlight. Frozen in an action, I watched it. For a few moments it was motionless, save for a slight heaving of the body as it breathed. Then, raising itself up until it stood on the tips of its four tentacles, its standing about three feet high, it bunched itself together and sped towards the sheer wall with astonishing speed. In a sort of stupefaction, I watched it. In less time than it takes to write it, it was against the wall, immediately beneath the window I was leaning out of. Then, with a horrible, creeping action, it began to scale the wall scaling the perpendicular wall and making straight for my window. I waited to see no more, but withdrawing my head, banged down the window and fumbled at the catch. In my hurry, I dropped the revolver. I pressed the spring of the electric lamp, but to my dismay, no light shone out. Dropping on my knees, with the desperation of terror, I groped wildly about the floor. Minute after minute passed, and still found my frenzied hands empty. I half sobbed as I thought of the horror outside that would reach the window at any moment. It was no physical fear that assailed me. 
It was rather a deadly nausea, a revolting of the soul inexplicably and impossible to adequately explain. Suddenly I leapt to my feet and dashed headlong to the door. Wildly I fumbled at the handle, but I had locked the door and the key was in my pocket. As my hand closed over it, there came a sharp crack from the window, and I suddenly became aware of an overpowering scent of wet, rotten leaves. I turned my head swiftly and looked at the window through which the moonlight was streaming. The pane was shivered in a thousand cracks, and there, glued to it, with its emerald eyes glaring balefully at me, was the thing. One long, hairy tentacle was through the hole in the glass. It swept the air as far as it could reach, and behind it glared the flashing emerald eyes. I saw the lipless mouth dropping saliva and felt the subtle odor of decay swaying my senses. Then, dashing the key madly in the lock, I tore open the door and plunged headlong down the stairs. Out into the moonlit night I sped, biting my lips till the blood flowed to keep back the screams of my delirium that choked me. At the gate, I looked back at the moon-silvered wall. A black blot showed up high at one of the windows, then suddenly disappeared. Shutting out the sight with my hand, I rushed blindly away. I must have run at headlong speed for many miles, and in the middle of a quiet meadow, I sank down on the dewy grass in merciful oblivion. And that is the beginning and the end of the mystery of Marshlands. On reflection, I determined to lock the events of that night in my memory, for I had no wish to be thought a madman. I visited the deserted place some day after, and in accordance with my instructions, a massive stone slab was placed over the well, which I saw with a sudden shudder in the morning light was again covered by the wooden top. And when I had last seen it, it was uncovered. The house is still shunned and deserted. The horror still remains. But I, and I alone, know that it will never visit again. The End Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts. With me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I do love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon where we have lots of tears, each with their own special treats. Also, rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.